oki naganago mekoche chesta komaki de kots nagotine siku. Hi, my name is Michelle, and I use she and her pronouns. And today is January 8th. I want to start by acknowledging that we're on Treaty 7 territory. Uh, the Blackfoot Confederacy has maintained these lands for since time immemorial. And uh, the Confederacy is made of the Siksika, Gainai, and Bagani, and south of the border, the Blackfeet Nation. Why does that matter today out of all days is that we're all celebrating um, Lily, Glad you, or Lily Gladstone's win mm -hmm. on uh, the first globe, and she's from the Blackfeet Nation. So it's interesting hearing American terminology talking about our area. Anyway, Treaty 7 was signed in 1877 uh, with the Blackfoot, Sutina, and the Stony Nakoda. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. And I welcome you all to our first 2024 uh, book club. And of course, we're doing lessons in legitimacy and lucky enough to have author uh, Sean here. And I should I call you Dr. Carlton? Would you prefer that? <laughs> no, please, please just call me Sean. <laughs> okay, that sounds great. Well, welcome to our book club. These are our like regulars that come quite frequently. We're we're missing a couple. Um, one of our uh, favorites named Rosemary. She's uh, she's a little older. She had uh, surgery done on her eyes and all sorts of stuff and, and other surgeries as well. So we're just keeping her in our thoughts and our prayers because uh, she has been doing anti-racism work in Calgary for decades. So like this is right up her alley. So we, yeah, she's been great. And her husband actually is a prof and his specialty was South African apartheid. So it was really interesting, you know, when he would come to talk about these things that we are talking about all the time. So, um, yeah, so welcome. Welcome to our book club. Uh, typically, we allow uh, Indigenous people to speak first. And uh, that would be me and Kathy Bear. We're the only ones that identify as Indigenous. But, um, you know, obviously, because settlers have always taken the space. So, the book club was to try to give space to Indigenous first and then um, and learn from there. So uh, in an attempt to create that safer space, as you know, you can't have a totally safe space, but we can at least try and uh, and work at not being um, ableist as well. So Sherry, uh, Shelly Nearing, she's on on the call here. And she really has helped us with not being uh, ableist as well. So really grateful for her uh, knowledge and what she's contributed to the Reconciliation Action Group as well as this book club. So yeah, that's a little bit about us and welcome, Sean. Yeah, well, uh, thank, thanks so much for the invitation, Michelle. It's good to be uh, back, even if virtually in, in Treaty 7. Uh, for those of you I haven't met, um, I was uh, living in Calgary, uh, from 2016 to 2020, just in the pandemic. Uh, and then I've since moved to the University of Manitoba, uh, where I'm a professor in the Departments of History and Indigenous Studies out here in Treaty 1 territory. Uh, but I still uh, think of my time in Calgary very fondly, all of the people that I got to meet and connect and still get uh, the opportunity to, to engage with. Um, and what a cool opportunity, I think, for you folks to have a book club. Right. Part of the work that I do is thinking about education and why, you know, education is the answer. Um, and that doesn't happen just in the university. That's part of, I think, the argument is that education needs to be thought of more broadly. Uh, and book clubs are an awesome opportunity to engage with academic nerds like me, but also other kinds of books. Uh, and I, I saw Michelle's list for, for this year and it looks phenomenal. Uh, so I'm sure you'll have lots of 
of great conversations. And, and I'm just really glad to uh, be kicking off the new year um, and, and happy to, I guess I'm a member of the book club, but you can kind of chat about certain things, but I'm happy to answer any questions and generally just kind of hang out. That's awesome. I know what I was talking to my friend. Um, so I'm just going to do a little brag here. Uh, so for whatever reason, Kathy and Kat worked together to make me the stained glass um, uh, grow grew and it's gorgeous. It's ridiculously beautiful. I can't believe how gorgeous it is. So Kathy Bear, she's really talented at being able to do things like this. And Kat helped with like, uh, with part of the, the drawings and such of it. So um, really, thank you. I wanted to brag about it here more than anything. And Kat actually runs a settler book club too. So I try to create that safer space for indigenous people, but there it's safe for settlers to be settlers, right. And to talk and try to help each other in that way. So, um, so yeah, so we actually have two book clubs. There's this one and then the settlers book club. And that I think is so great. I wish I could commit to two books a month, but I can't. <laughs> I just can't do that. So otherwise I would. Um, yeah. So I I really want to thank you. A, a little story for the rest of the book club. I actually had seen Sean had posted something on one of the socials about, hey, we're running a contest, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, tag your friends or something. And I did whatever he asked. And, and then so he sent me one of these books and it says, Michelle, thanks for all your support for truth and justice. And um you know, Sean, just because of what has been happening with Palestine and, you know, the uh, nationalism and like this being the blueprint of nationalism through the education system. Like there were times I was like, oh, my God, this is the blueprint. This is the blueprint. And I kept saying that on Twitter. But, you know, it's like screaming in the void sometimes. So. <laughs> um, so. I want to ask you some questions here in a bit, and some of them will be something like, uh, what are things that you learned that you didn't know before writing this book, blah, 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 blah. But I, I wanted to tell you, um, I just about, like, I, I couldn't believe, I, I shot right out of my chair when I learned about how the school trustees and how the voting for women was first put together thanks to the books, or, or thanks to the education system possibly going through. Um, I was really offended by most of the, uh, you know, concepts of classism of that time, you know, and, and you really wrote it really well about, you know, if you were part of the HBC, how you were like, you know, an upper class and, and how all these kids were integrated solely based off of basically work. And uh, so I was really offended by a lot of it because I, I kept thinking as a Boilermaker's daughter, I, you know, where I would be in this class system, right? And, uh, and going from there, as opposed to the, you know, aristocrats. Um, and then seeing basically the start of women's voting through this book, I was, I was pretty, pretty shocked. And it, BC was very different in the sense that there was so much inter integration from the beginning. So those were some really like pretty big takeaways for me. Um, going to Comox, I, I just, I never would have thought Vancouver Island was where they really did most of the, the foundation of setting up of Canada there. Like I, I was really shocked by it. So, so great book. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, I didn't get to the very last couple of pages here because I, I'm, I'm in my dining room 
I have a brand new table and I had to move it today out of all days. So unfortunately, the time allotted to finish the book, I, I was unable to do it thanks to that. But that's okay. So I just wanted to give my, uh, you know, initial thoughts of reading it to you. I'll pass it over to Kathy and then we'll, we'll go to the other settlers in um, alphabetical order. So Carol, Kat, Marla, uh, Shelley, and Wendy. Hi, everybody. Um, hi, Sean. It's nice to see you. Um, I really enjoyed your book. I finished it a couple of days ago, uh, but I, I really couldn't come up with too many questions. I, I dog-eared it everywhere, and it's all just um, examples that you give that are kind of like shocking or whatever, like, you know, triggering for me. Um, so... You know, I really don't have a lot of comments to say about anything specific in here, uh, but I do want to say that it, it really has opened up uh, my thinking about the school system because, you know, I've always just thought of the Indian residential school and I never really thought about other, like the mainstream schooling. Um, like I... I didn't realize that Indigenous people went to school in BC with the regular kids because I know, I think Alberta was a little bit more strict in that way. Um, I remember one little anecdote is when I was little, I remember my dad being on the phone and being surprised when my sister could join the regular school system in Edmonton, Alberta. I remember the shock in his voice going, she can go there <laughs> kind of thing. And um because my dad was a, a German and my mother was a uh, Cree. So he got custody thanks to the government. Um, and I just remember that, that allowed us stick with me, the, the surprise, because I, I never understood it as a kid. It's only now that I'm reaching close to 60 that I really understand why he made that comment, because he totally didn't expect her to be, because that would have been about 61 or something that she was starting school. Um, so it, it uh, not 61, about 67, 68. So like for, for her to be going to a regular school was unheard of, I, well, unusual, I guess. But there are other people that have made it into the regular school system, but they were more Métis. My sister was only my half-sister. She was pure Indigenous. Like there's no way she could pass as, as um, anything but Indigenous. So um yeah, I just uh, really enjoyed reading the book. There is, um, yeah, it just kind of opened my mind to how education was used. So, yeah, thank you so much for writing this book, Sean. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna take space again. Sorry, Carol, uh, to do that to you. Um, you, when I was reading this, Sean, on page fifty. 53 I had to google squatocracy I was so offended and when I read it I'm like I can't even post this online because I know these right-wing nut jobs will actually start using this again I'd rather them read your book <laughs> and have to find it rather than me putting it out on the internet and the other thing I wanted to say was uh, when Justin Trudeau apologized um, about the hanging of these chiefs 
you know, I was like, how did I not know that? And so I was so when I when I was reading your book, I was really happy to see that in here. So that there was like context to that. Because like, for me, it, it was embarrassing. I'm like a part of the Liberal Party of Canada. I'm part of the Indigenous Peoples Commission. And I had no concept, no idea. So I was really grateful for all this background on it. So thank you for that. And now I promise I'll, I'll send it back to Carol. Thanks, Michelle. Um, so Sean, I'm on Treaty 7. And um, I'm here to learn and disseminate what I learn. And um, your book was, I have to say there's a bit of a story. I couldn't find the book. And I, I had to drive to Canmore on Friday to get it in this little room. Like I tracked it down in a little bookstore in Canmore. So you seem to be sold out in Calgary. And anyway, I got it. I've still got a few pages left to read, but there was so much in this book. I mean, you really pulled so many things together for me and you really um, increased my awareness of um, the schools in uh, uh, residential schools, types of schools where they started the type of people that were the brutality involved in it all and it you really made me reflect on my own um schooling as well and how my own schooling legitimized a lot of this and there were so many things i mean i wrote notes i wrote notes and tons of them <laughs> and um one of the things that i really appreciated was the dialectics of how colonial um dispossession fed capitalist accumulation that's a quote from your book these are things that i didn't know and i didn't think about and um so much to this that you know i have so many notes in front of me I, um it, it, how did prep the kids to you know accept this and how the parents struggled to kind of reclaim their kids. And that quote by Sir John A. Macdonald, I did not know that quote. And when I read it, I thought, okay, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. One Carol, of them anyway. One Carol, of them. can I ask you, would you consider joining the Reconciliation Action Group? Because we're trying to get John A. Macdonald High School renamed. And I, and a lot of people are unaware. Like my own dad, I I think I I accidentally hurt his feelings a couple of times talking about Winston Churchill and John A. Macdonald and why I don't want these schools named after them because they're racist. So I just want to put pot that in your ear. You don't have to answer right now. I'm sorry to interrupt. Sure, sure. Like the the thing about it is, is that um, it really spoke to that's how, how entrenched that white privilege was and that patriarchal type of um 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 you know hegemony over everything and i loved that you keep quoting gina's uh star blanket because i love her stuff i love her stuff on politics and structure and things like that so and and how gender binary you made that comment you quoted and um introduced was introduced in the, the colonial schools. And I thought, yes. Um, and how indigenous girls were trained to be domestics or like the white Victorian women. And I mean, I thought how, how the cultural genocide, I mean, it just clearly your book blew my mind. So I was glad I took a little trip to Canmore and got it. It was worth it. And, um, I just love, like, I look at the back, your appendix, 
like you have done so much work on this and and I really appreciate how you pulled it together for me. So there's much more I could say, but I won't. I'll let someone else speak. So thank you. Hi, Sean, I'm Kat. I go by she, her, or they, them. Um, I guess I run Sellers Book Club. I was born on Treaty One territory. So um, it's nice that you are there now. Um, I also really appreciated this book. I was a little nervous um, after hearing that you were a professor. I thought it was gonna be all, you know, academic and stuff, but you wrote it so well, so clearly. You laid everything out so beautifully. And um, a lot of the things that Carol said also um, I found as well, particularly, I mean, I think I might have realized this before, but it really um, brought it home that how education is used to train us to be capitalist settlers and how education is used to colonize. And it is still ongoing this process um, that we can't forget that it wasn't just history that is still um, still happening right now. Um, I would definitely recommend this book to anybody and everybody. And I did have a question for you. Um, are we taking questions now or? Yeah, okay. Um, you did a, an amazing amount of research and I was just wondering what surprised, surprised you the most in all your research? Because um, obviously a lot of these things surprised us the things that we didn't know, but what surprised you? Okay, great. You, Michelle, I don't know how this works. Do you want me to answer now? Do you want me to wait and uh, what, what respond are you to comfortable everybody? With? Yeah, what, maybe we can just add that to the collection if you'd like, and we can keep sure. going from there if that's easiest. And then, Sure, and, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm taking notes, so I'll, I'll come back to all of these uh, great points, including your trip out to Canmore. Um, awesome. So thanks so much, Kat. Yeah. Anything else you want to add, Kat? Nope. Awesome. Is it my turn now? Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, great book, Sean. Thank you very much. I think, um, uh, well, all the notes and the appendices and everything just sort of says it all <laughs> before you even dig into the book. I'm that person that reads the front and the back like not the ending, but just the front and the back before I dive in and I look at all the chapters and I'm I'm a bit ADHD that way, I think, but it helps me um, get myself grounded. I think I was surprised too to learn that um, Indigenous kids were in the regular system. Some of them were. I, I just didn't, I'd never heard that before. I didn't even think it was possible. Um I found interesting when you talked about how they had talked uh, to the U.S. about setting up residential schools and that they were advised to not let the church run things and that they went ahead and did that anyway, um, despite advice that it would be poorly run and the kids would not be treated well. Um, the chapters on, you know, the treatment, I mean, I, I think... Um, I've read some of that before, but uh, it was really blunt and brutal in your chapters, which, um, you know, is hard to read, but also I think necessary. Um, the, yeah, I didn't, I, I, I loved how 
you know, you talked about how it was important to kind of combine the understanding of the two different systems. And um, I don't know that I've read another book like that where, where it does really help you learn and reflect on um, how both are really wrong. <laughs> Obviously the indigenous kids were treated a thousand times worse, um, but really kind of hitting home that we're, we're all subjects <laughs> to, to Canada. And uh, so it, it also made me think about years ago, I was um, watching this panel presentation and there was a gentleman, Muhammad Yusuf, Yusuf, Yunus, sorry. Um, and he was part of the um, initiative around micro-granting. And he was standing in front of uh, some other middle-aged white men talking about how uh, the education system was basically useless. And we should be teaching kids entirely different things to function in this world and not to sit, you know, and and memorize and repeat rote things for exams. And and when he said it, it was very controversial. The whole rest of the panel fought back and and uh, you know had reasons why things should stay the same. So so this made me think a bit about that. Um I also thought about when you wrote about the resistance of the kids and families and communities that, you know, knew and wanted education for their kids, but then also clearly understood how wrong it was and how poorly they were being treated and, you know, fought back any way they could. Um, that's, you know, extremely courageous. And um, so that stuck with me. And then I think also the um, the day schools, I knew they were there, but um, you wrote in there that they closed 10 years later than residential schools. I did not realize that. So that's really recent. I mean, it's all recent, but that's really recent. Um, and I guess my question for you is kind of, um, I think, how did it impact you while you were, while you were writing the book, but actually maybe even more so afterwards and once it all, you know, everything kind of settled and, um, you know, how's it impacted you since then? Good questions. Yeah. Thanks so much. Hello. Um, I'm Shelly. I go by she, the, she, her, sorry. And, um, I'm an autistic individual. Um, I've been struggling with reading lately, but I got to part three. <laughs> Even though I've been struggling, I still really did an honest effort. <laughs> and um, I was really shocked that like the the integration of the schools before the before people started saying no, you can't do that. And it was like everybody needs deserves education and somebody decided oh no this is not how it goes and I was really I really liked all the pictures um I wonder how hard those were to find um I my comprehension is not that great when I'm not struggling to read so I'm just gonna let let somebody else go thanks Shelly Great, I think it's over to me. Hi, Sean, I'm Wendy, I use she and her pronouns. Um, I also really appreciated that you took the time to write 
this book, uh, really appreciated how, um, you know, I felt like I, I was walking through the story. So I felt like there was a lot of sense of who the different people were. Um, you know, you didn't have to write out all the letters that were going back and forth, but you had a really good level of quotes. I felt like I could get a feel for the people involved. Um, some of the things that really stood out for me, and I would agree with others who've said, like, I haven't looked at anything else that does such a broad view of the education system as a whole. So that was something I really appreciated. Um, but also um, that idea of structures of indifference um, really stuck with me and um, got me reflecting on, you know, the how that plays out for us right now. Um, definitely, uh, there's a lot of challenge in getting um, white settlers to a place where we can have good conversation, good nuanced conversation. And, um, you know, thinking about, I, I appreciate, I had heard of um, Dr. Bryce's work, uh, but really appreciated hearing about Elizabeth Shaw's work um, and the things that she wrote about this culture of fear. Um, and just, you gave so many examples like that, that really uh, reminded us that 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 resistance was ever present. Like there were there were people who saw what was going on and saw that it was wrong and spoke up. Um, and then it, that connects me back to that structure of indifference where there that is always the case. There's always people who see things. Um, and then I was thinking about that as others were speaking just now and and thinking about how, um, you know, how did that impact um the parents of of their kids who were um, non-indigenous, who were in a non-indigenous indigenous system. Um, and then if they got a glimmer of awareness of the things that Dr. Bryce and others were saying about how bad it was, did that, um, I guess my question, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are, is, you know, did that structure of indifference kind of play into that? Like, did that kind of fuel that thinking of like, well, it's hard for everyone. Like, you know, I, I think, I feel like um, the struggle that all people were having was made clearer in this book than I've seen in, in some other books. And then it just got me thinking about that because you also presented all those examples where Indigenous and non-Indigenous kids were going to school together. So there are families that would have known each other, you know, that intersection, they would have had some, I would hope some humanness to thinking about kids and thinking about um, what was going on. And um, so I'm still reflecting on that structure of indifference piece, because I think we still live with a lot of that today. And um, just took me down some really good roads to to think a little more deeply about that. And and where are the spaces where we can have conversations without defensiveness, where we can actually explore um, these issues? Because otherwise, we're just another version of, you know, not quite enough people are seeing and understanding that we have to take actions um, to make systems work for us, that our systems aren't just going to inherently do what's right. Um, the systems are going to uh, be contingent on citizens speaking up and, and speaking up in large numbers. So thank you so much for this book. Um, really looking forward to hearing more of your thoughts. One last thing I want to add was that Wendy kind of gave a shout out to some of the books you've referenced. And I had just spent about eight weeks, um, kind of like two hour sessions with Tyler Shipley's book, 
about settler colonialism. It was such a good, uh, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I was like, this is amazing. So I haven't actually read the book. It was gifted to me, but I haven't uh, read it. But watching his two hour sessions for like eight weeks was amazing. So I just wanted to throw that in. I really loved your references as well, just to add to what um, Wendy was saying. And I'll, I'll pass the mic over there to you, Sean. Yeah, well, um, you know, first, thanks to to all of you for showing up today, but also for for engaging with the book. I think uh, I can't remember who was saying it, maybe Kathy or, or Carol was saying, oh, I saw you were a professor. I was a bit nervous. Um, you know, academics have a bad reputation for, um, you know, writing to themselves, um, often, you know, not considering the way that their work can help um, and be read by a larger audience. Um, but I, I tried you know, to the best of my ability um, to kind of please two audiences. Uh, I, as an academic, uh, I have to, you know, write academically. Um, part of the work that I do is uh, research-based um, and is about having a conversation with other historians in the field to help us, you know, um, generate new knowledge about the past that we can then weave into our teaching and into the popular work that we do. But I think there is also a responsibility, or at least I felt like I had a responsibility, and I talk about this at the beginning of the book. Um, you know, having a residential school survivor in my family uh, who had asked me to take on part of this work. You know, part of that ask was not just for my own benefit to have an academic career, et cetera, et cetera. It was to share what I learned with people, right? To to help understand what what he went through, but also how that's in relationship to what I went through in a different school system in the same place and how those different systems overlapped and created very different lives for Patrick and I. And when he asked it to me like that, I started to understand that I had a larger responsibility here coming out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report and the work that they've done to help other settlers understand how these systems worked how they taught us certain things, uh, how they taught Indigenous people certain things, and how education is actually a core part of the colonial project. We like to think of like, you know, wars and land surveyors and you know, all of these different other pieces of the colonial project. But sometimes we let schools off the hook. You know, we think the schools are about teaching us, which is an inevitably, you know, like an unquestioned positive. Or I hear people say, um, residential schools and day schools were bad, but they're over. And now Indigenous kids can go to public schools. Everything's great. I often hear that. Um, and so these were sort of the bigger kind of questions that I had kicking around in, in my head as I was navigating how I would write this book and for who, you know, who, who would benefit from this book. And, you know, the conventions of the university uh, are such that, um, you know, I need to write an academic book. It needs to be published with a university press for a whole, you know, uh, sort of reasons. But I felt that that responsibility of why am I doing this? I'm doing this to help other people like me, you know, move on from the excuse of I, I didn't learn this. I, I never knew anything about this. Um, and so I was sort of writing it for that person, right? I was writing it for me before I came to this knowledge. Um, and I, so I, you know, I just wanted to, before I respond to everybody's, uh, wonderful points and interesting questions is just say, um, you know, I'm sure there are parts that were harder than others. 
Uh, but you've all demonstrated, um, you know, an incredible ability to, it, it feels really good, I guess is what I'm trying to say, that you can engage and get the big ideas from this book. Um, because if I had written it above everybody's head, it would be useless to me, right? The, that's not why I'm doing this work. Yeah. Sean, uh, just real quick, I wanted to let you know that both Kat and I were having a conversation about how um, accessible it actually was, as opposed to some of the others, like Clearing the Plains is a horrific book that everybody should have to read, but it is very academic. Um, one of my favorite books is The Importance of Monogamy, and uh, and you did reference that one too, but that's a very academic book as well. So Kat and I both had really enjoyed that part of it. And just to add to what you were saying, um, you know, because I went to the TRC, I went to the uh, testimonies they had in Calgary, and I went to the Edmonton four-day event. And, um, you know, they, they've made it really clear. And of course, in the report, of the importance of being witnesses, right? And I think uh, this group in particular understands that better than any other, because as far as I know, not no one in the country other than us has like legitimately sat down together and read all the volumes of the TRC together, <laughs> right? Like nobody, <laughs> no one has yeah. done that but us. Uh, <laughs> we've also done the the national inquiry, right? So like I, everyone here really understands that concept of being a witness and, and then telling that truth to others. And that's why we started the Reconciliation Action Group, because once you have that knowledge, you can't you can't just hold it inside of you, right? Like you and academics, you, you do that great work all the time and, and try to spread that truth. But I think like for Canadians, just regular Joe Canadians, you know, we have to do more. And especially there's a, a few folks that are missing that are teachers as well. And, uh, you know, they, they talk about how they integrate that into their teaching style. And it's hard because I think you and I know, you know, you always get the one or two teachers that are really great and, and understand these things and have like an intersectional lens, but like the majority don't yet. And the, and the institutions of these like education boards don't necessarily facilitate each teacher being able to tell the full truth and the whole truth. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to add to that to you, just so you have context there too. So I'll, I'll pass it back. Yeah, no. And I mean, you know, I say this, I think in the introduction, right. But that, you know, one of the core principles of the book and the work that I do, uh, is building on the TRC's idea that in order to, to, to move towards reconciliation, we first have to have truth. Truth will lead to healing and justice. Healing and justice will then lead us to developing those meaningful relationships. Um, but you know, as Murray Sinclair has said over and over again, he thinks that that Canada's rushing the truth part, right? Where he, rushing reconciliation and leaving the truth behind. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of felt you know this book came out in 2022. The TRC um, final report was released in 2015. I finished my PhD in 2016. And I was like trying to write as fast as possible because I felt that there, you know, there was again, that responsibility of I'm not just writing this for my job or to tell other nerdy historians about things. I felt that there was a responsibility to help people like myself, like Patrick, um, to, to understand a deeper aspect of, of the truth. I mean, to be honest, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report, um, you know, is like the starting, pl starting place. There's so much more history that, that needs to be understood here. It's really just trying to bring people up to speed. 
and and add survivor testimony uh, to what we already know. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to kind of start by saying, you know, to me, having a conversation like this in an environment like this is exactly what I hope other academics will do. Because if we're just talking to ourselves, um, you know, that to me, uh, that's not where the work in this situation needs needs to be. It needs to be finding ways for all of us to play different roles, right? Um, and you know, I, I just wanted to say I appreciate you taking the time uh, to to engage with us. And you know, I'm happy uh, that for the most part, some of the big points came through. Uh, and as you you said, uh, Michelle, that some of it can be academic, but the big points are accessible. You know that that's. Uh, a skill that I hope I can continue to build. Uh, and, and as you read other works in the, in the book club, um, you know, I think there is that responsibility of academics to bridge that gap. If you're only talking to yourselves in an ivory tower, um, it, it doesn't make much of a difference in the world. The, the goal here, right, isn't just, to, as you mentioned, to learn the truth for the truth's sake. It's about facilitating the healing and the justice and the reconciliation part. So, um, yeah, trying to spark those conversations and make it as, as accessible as possible uh, is very gratifying. So thank you. Thank you for that. I'll go through some of these uh, observations and, and questions if that's all right. And if I'm uh, boring you, you can just cut me off or interrupt, please. Um, but I mean, one of the things that I see throughout all of these different comments, and Kathy, you kind of kicked it off by saying that some of the examples are shocking. Um, and you know, I think they were shocking to me as well as I was doing the research. Um, but I think perhaps the most shocking part is that they were shocking because they were all sitting there in the archives in the publicly accessible records uh, that, uh, you know, officials were leaving behind. Uh, it's not that this truth was hidden or that it was confidential or redacted. It was all just sitting there. Um, and I think that that... Um, you know, I'm glad, Kathy, that it was kind of opening your mind to some of these things and that part of the work of historians is to show people the evidence, right? Nobody wants to spend the amount of hours I spend in the archives reading over Department of Indian Affairs records. You know, that's that's time that I'll never get back and that most people wouldn't want to do, um, you know, thousands of hours. Uh, but the benefit is that now, because I've done that work, those shocking examples hopefully won't be so shocking. They will be understood by other people, right? That's the work that historians can offer society is <laughs> nobody wants to do that work, but we do, you know? Um, and I think that, um, you know, again, that's that kind of responsibility in the relationship that I hope academics have to society generally is that we play a role. Uh, just like health professionals, um, you know, and and others, that's uh, something that we can we can provide. And if truth is the key to reconciliation, we've got more work to do. I guess is is one of the main messages because this is just the the tip of the iceberg in terms of of what's there. Um, and I mean, your your example, Kathy, of your dad's shock uh, or surprise, I suppose, of having your sister. Uh, being able to go to a public school. And just a quick point, you know, this book stops in 1930, uh, but by the 1950s, 1960s, after the Second World War, essentially the Department of Indian Affairs uh, comes to the conclusion that it's pretty expensive to have a separate school system. And 
<laughs> essentially that, you know, it, it, it's money driven, right? They're like, if we can download the responsibility of the, of schooling, right, back onto provinces, we can save a lot of money, essentially. Uh, so by the 60s and 70s, you start to see um, more and more Indigenous children being, quote unquote, integrated into the public school system. Uh, and there's a whole other book that needs to be written on that on that history and helping people understand, you know, the, the complicated um, stories that would have happened at, at that point. Uh, but I'm glad, uh, Kathy, that it opened your mind to, to thinking about those different things. Uh, and Carol, I, I, I'm I'm glad, you know, Can Canmore is not a bad place to go. It's a nice it's a nice day trip, uh, if I remember that correctly. Um, but I'm glad that it, it proved useful and that you you've taken some notes and and offered lots of things. Um, it's it's offered you lots of things to reflect on. Um, and I mean, maybe just quickly to comment on um, again your sort of shock and surprise about you know the level of commitment that many of these officials had. Right? We think of Johnny McDonald. Yes, he's the prime minister, but as I explain. Uh, you know, he was he also chose the position of superintendent general of Indian affairs for himself, right? He he quarterbacked Western colonization as part of the nation building project. That was a deliberate choice that he made. Uh, and you know, he he knew what he was doing. We often think it's like good intentions gone wrong, right? Um, and I think part of the work that I was trying to do in those earlier chapters, chapter two and chapter, if I remember my own book correctly, four, um, is to show that they knew what they were doing from the beginning, right? This was about separating children from their families and communities to undermine indigenous lifeways, to facilitate, you know, colonialism and capitalist accumulation and development to support the nation building project. You know, there, there is not really a gray area. Uh, people who say that haven't done, <laughs> haven't done the excruciating research to, to show that this is what people were saying at the time. It wasn't that things, you know, started off fine, but then went wrong. It was like all of that, all of those problems were baked into the system from the beginning. Uh, it's just that Canada benefited a lot uh, from that system doing its work and was always supporting the public school system, right? If, if the idea here that I borrow from uh, this writer, Albert Memmi, um, wrote a really interesting book uh, called The Colonizer and the Colonized, um, is that the work of colonization seeks to break down Indigenous people and build up non-Indigenous people. It's like, the it's two parts. We often only just focus on the colonization and the bad uh, and, and negative effects um, for Indigenous people, but colonial officials are always thinking of those two things together which I hope my book kind of makes sense of for people is that that's the, you know, the, the negative and the breaking down of the residential and day school systems were happening at the same time as the building up of the public school system. Um, and I think that that is sort of kind of shocking to think about, or it changes the way that we view the separateness of this and instead understand that these things need to be understood as, as being interwoven. Yeah, Michelle. I was just wondering if you had read that book, um, Confessions of a Dead Man. Um, it's it's not uh, it's not really fiction, but kind of is. It's a story mm -hmm. about if you were to have a conversation with Duncan Cl Campbell Scott's ghost. Oh. Yeah, and uh, in I'm... it, 
So the, the guy who wrote it, he found all of these ridiculous quotes that he had said at that time. Mm-hmm. And it, it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. But, you know, the, the story flows, right, where he thought he was helping. He thought he was doing good. And so, like, this is the, you know, we were helping these Native kids, et cetera, et cetera. And just horrible, horrible quotes that came out of it. So, like, it, it, it was one of those moments like you where you're forced to do thousands of hours of research and they, he found these quotes and he put it together in a, in a book. And um, actually, there's a Calgary police officer. I told him about this book and he bought it. And uh, I don't know, I lost mine. So then he bought me my, my latest copy because, um, but I said, every Canadian should have to have this book and read some of the ridiculous colonizing belief system that they had at the time, because that's all it was, was them going through Indian affairs and pulling out these ridiculous quotes. So um, just to kind of add to what you're saying. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we, uh, this is the other thing uh, is that we often have a view that, like so many people, so many of the architects of, of the residential school system are are based in Ontario. Their prime ministers are working in the Department of Indian Affairs. Um, they're off in their own world. And one of the things that I found sort of concerning is that uh, if if folks remember, one of the the people that Johnny McDonald handpicks uh, is a guy named Israel Wood Powell, uh, and he's the Superintendent General of Indian Affairs in BC. Um, and he's basically taking everything that's going on in, in, in Ontario and trying to root it in, in British Columbia. But I think most people in British Columbia have no idea who Powell is, right? They will have heard of Duncan Campbell Scott. They will have heard of McDonald. But some of the things that Powell was saying, right? Like we need to use schools as a soft form of gaining greater control. And then when we have control over their children, right? We will be able to essentially um, pass uh, our, our policies in in better in better ways. We would have we will grow our power faster. Um, you know, Powell Street downtown Vancouver. Right. I don't think a lot of people have have focused on how many people there were that had some of these concerning um, openly anti-indigenous racist beliefs uh, that kind of shocked um, some of the the members of the group, including Carol, and how entrenched these beliefs were. Right, um, and I'll get to the the structures of indifference question um, from Wendy, but yeah, I think part of this was also just showing it's not just a few bad apples, right? That's an, another thing that we think of when we look at this history. It's just McDonald. It's just Duncan Campbell Scott. No, it's basically everybody who steps into these positions uh, holds they they get the position because they hold the beliefs and that they'll do the work required. And I think that that is you know is a lot more uh, of a devastating realization than there were just a few bad apples uh it's actually that the systems that were created that very much benefit canada uh are are, are deeply problematic um so cat um you know I'm, again i'm glad that it wasn't too academic-y uh and that the idea of education as being sort of a tool of rule both for Indigenous people, but also for non-Indigenous people came through clearly. Um, because I think if we have the ability to have conversations with people about, you know, how public schooling today still, it's better, but it's still at root basically has that same function of training people to build the society uh, that we all live in, uh, in, in specific ways. Um, you know, I think 
I think we need to have those conversations too. Um, it's not just residential schools are now over, public schools are are great, continue on. Although we need to defend public schools. That's another tangent that I'll, uh, we can go to at another point. But um, what surprised me the most, um, you know, one of the things that academics get a bad rap for from particularly the far right is that we we already know the arguments we're gonna make and we just come in and we find the evidence and then we we say what we already understood. And we don't do that. I mean, man, if I already knew what I was gonna find, I would save myself 10 years of work. Um, I think what surprised me the most is how um, how deliberate all of it was. I and I think, I feel like that's a mundane observation, but I feel like the crushing weight of realizing that a lot of these people are just going in, they're checking in nine to five, and you know they're in charge of genocide. You know, like how how sort of matter of fact it is. Um, I think that 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 actually surprised me. How, uh, in in many ways, you know, we like to think that, as I said, there, there's these bad apples that are conspiring together in a room, um, but in reality, you know, these these horrible structures were created by people who thought they were doing good or that they knew what they were doing wasn't good for indigenous people, but would ultimately be good for, for Canada uh, and for themselves, that sort of self-interested element. Um, and, and so I think that that, that maybe surprised me the most um, how very quickly, um, you know, people would kind of get sucked up into the system and then they would maintain that system and the devastation that it would have, even when all of the signs were clearly pointing in a different direction. And I think that that holds a lot of lessons for us today uh, about how atrocities happen under our very noses um, and, and people don't have the ability to push back at them um, in, in real time. Um, uh, Maria, um, you know, I'm glad, you know, that you pulled out uh, a lot of pieces um, that again, su surprised me. Um, one of them was that, that, you know, we really should think of the Indian residential school system as being modeled on, uh, the boarding school system for indigenous kids in, uh, the United States and that Johnny McDonald sends his friend, Nicholas Flood Davin down to the U S to, uh, to speak and consult with, um, with officials there. And they say, you know, whatever you do, don't partner with the churches and let let them do it because you know the, the money's going to disappear and the kids are going to pay the price. And he and he reports that like he reports it in his report and then they're like, yeah, that that model sounds really great and we should let that continue for uh, essentially a hundred years before it starts to get phased out in the in the sixties and seventies, right? Where the 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 government is providing for the most part the money uh, and, and churches are are running. Uh, the schools with very little oversight. Um, so it, it just, again, surprising to me that in 1879, before the system gets started, you know, the, you know, the person who writes the report is saying, this is probably not going to be a great idea. And yet I'm still going to recommend it anyway. I think that that that's pretty damning um, and, and, and very surprising. And, and then I guess the, the focus on resistance. So part of it was that I was coming across all of these examples of quote unquote bad behavior. Um, 
And that's often how the, the principals uh, and S Department of Indian Affairs officials would talk about, you know, burning down the school, uh, you know, everything from burning down the school to stealing food. It would be, I was coming across these in the context of punishment for bad behavior. And I'm thinking, you know, I think there might be another way to categorize or at least understand what's going on here. And if you dig deeper in these examples, you can see how children as young as like six and seven were figuring out in live time, like these people don't have my best interests at heart mm -hmm. and we need to find a way to get out of here or work together with other people to minimize, uh, you know, the, the damage that was being created and just the kind of ingenuity of these young kids um, I thought deserved um, to be understood in the context of the devastation that was being wrought. So rather than just focusing on uh, the, you know, the, the terrible things that happened, and they did, yeah. um, it was also an acknowledgement of the agency that these, these children had. And, you know, that, and not just at the end, but like from the beginning, um, you know, there were people, including students and parents, who clearly understood what was going on and was trying, trying to make change in whatever ways they had available to them. Some more effective than others, sure. But I think it's important that those examples or episodes don't get forgotten as we try to grapple with uh, the full truth of um, colonial schooling. Sean, I have Trump. to tell you, I so appreciated that you added that throughout because uh, I actually uh, started laughing and I read that part to my husband about, you know, the teacher being hogtied and thrown out. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed so hard. I'm like, can you imagine after so much abuse that you were absolutely able to do that? And for a moment, you felt vindicated for a second. So I really appreciated those moments of resistance that you you sprinkled throughout the entire book. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, part of the part of the work that I did, uh, I know, Shelley, you had said you only came across part three, which is they're all my favorites. But part three, I think I was really trying to do something, particularly at the end where if you remember right at the end, I'm talking about essentially a boycott uh, of the Seashelt School and the parents that were trying to convince other um, Coast Salish communities in Vancouver and on Vancouver Island to engage in a boycott uh, to essentially change the school's um, employees and to create better reforms, et cetera. Um, and I think one of the things that I tried to do is talk about the that the resistance to this was ever present but it was not always successful because often what officials would do is they would use the resistance as justification to tighten the screws and so it was trying to find this balance where we understand the agency of people within these structures uh, but we also don't glorify um you know that that, that we can find like you know that burning down or trying to set fire to the residential school um, was liberatory for many of these students. But it also, because it's happening in a colonial context, it also makes the, 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 that structure tighten. You know what I mean? And so I think that I was trying to provide this sort of nuanced explanation of how, um, how resistance often leads to more resistance but also more resistance to the resistance, if that makes any sense. And we need to be aware of, of how 
you know, it's not just about coming to re the realization, I'll make this uh, connect back to the TRC. I think a lot of people, including myself, had a sort of naive view that people would just read the TRC, oops, sorry, and then reconciliation would happen. Um, and I didn't anticipate how much resistance there would be to simple truth telling. Uh, I'll get to that in a second with a, a response to Wendy's question. Um, but I think that that trying to understand that kind of complicated uh, relationship between resistance and these structures um, was something that I wanted to to make sure that I that I included. Um, and just um, you know, how did how did it um, impact me writing it, and how did it impact after? So writing, uh, researching and writing this book uh, was a blessing and a curse. I mean, I think it really helped me feel uh, like I was responding to my family members' ask of trying to learn this, to help people understand it. Um, but it was hard. Like, it, you know, I, you know, for a good decade uh, would sit down at the desk every day and be inhabiting a space where I was engaging with people talking about genocide. Um, and it doesn't, you know, um, it, some days are better than others. Um, famously, one of the, the people who helped uh, on the academic side sort of break the story of residential schools in, in a bigger way is a guy named John Malloy. I don't know if you've read the book, uh, Michelle, uh, for, for the... Um, for the book club, but I have it on my shelf here. It's called A National Crime by John Malloy. And he wrote uh, this book coming out of the um, Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples in the 90s. And it was one of the first sort of major historical works that laid out the national crime. And, you know, he famously talks about, um, you know, the book sort of derailing his life. Um, you know, he turned to alcohol and, and, and other things. It was just, a, it was a difficult, it was a difficult thing. So counseling, uh, working with elders, um, working with community helped me understand and process some of it. Um, but it, it wasn't, um, you know, it, it certainly wasn't an easy task, but it was one that I think was made easier by being very clear about why I was doing it. Um, and, and I guess after, um, I guess maybe the thing that surprised me the most is that again, sort of to show my own naiveness uh, is that I thought I would write the book and people would read it and they'd be like, that's interesting and move on. Um, but what I've actually encountered is a lot of, uh, of people who, um, who, who essentially are, are denialists, right? That they are committed to undermining at every you know, at every stage, um, you know, they, they see reconciliation as a threat. They understand the TRC formula of truth, then healing and justice, and then reconciliation. They understand that. So what they do is they try and quibble with the truth so that you don't have to do the healing and justice and reconciliation part. And I mean, boy, I can tell you, you know, I've been, um, you know, publicly attacked. I've had death threats. I've had coordinated efforts to get me fired uh, for simply like, reading the Department of Indian Affairs publicly accessible reports and being like, this is crazy, right? Um, and I did not anticipate that. I did not anticipate that level of pushback uh, from 
a sort of very small but very vocal and well-funded group of individuals, many of them, unfortunately, uh, who call Alberta home. Uh, Honestly, like Sean, I was going to totally interrupt and say, I feel you, because we are here in Calgary. Tr like, that's who we're up against. So when I see your, uh, whether it's an article in a paper or whichever, talking about these denialists, like, they are my neighbors. They are in positions of power. You know, they are the premier. They are the past premier. And like, I know Indigenous people who have literally devoted their entire academic career to debunking Tom Flanagan's work because it's so outrageous, like kind of back to what you were saying earlier about how um, in particular as an academic, you can't just pick and choose, but he did and he got away with it for some reason. So like, I, I just really appreciate that you do push back because I know for me, um, I, I see it first and foremost, but second of all, I see the coordinated attacks that come because we experience it here, uh, kind of back to what you were saying about that resistance and, and naivety. I, I tell, especially the Calgary police, how naive I was to think that, you know, we have the 94 calls to action. We have the 231 calls to justice. We have the solutions. Let's implement them. Easy peasy done done like dinner nope no so i i just want you to know like i have so much solidarity when i see you go through that because i know that's what i experience and my husband had a really hard time at his last job because they were trying to undermine the gravity of what had happened and i mean he has been with me for 30 years so he has met my family he's met you know folks that went to residential school and he's seen the after effects as well and uh, so I just wanted you to know, like, the work you're doing is so important. And I know, you know, there's that saying that, you know, um, first they ignore you, then they, uh, you know, all those things. And then it's just accepted and move on. And I'm just like, I'm waiting for that last part. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, and I mean, you know, it, I, I, I don't mean to make light of it, because, you know, much of it is um, vicious. Um, but in some ways, I think it shows me that people making these arguments, it's well-intentioned, it's in the past, uh, you know, accounts of abuse are overblown, nobody died, like all of these things are just so silly. They're, they're being made by people who know that these are wrong. They're doing it to try and undermine other people's confidence in the truth. Um, and it makes so much more sense to, to me because, you know, I've spent all of this accumulated time reading and trying to understand that truth that when someone says something so silly like that, um, you know, it, it did help me to understand what was going on there uh, and why people are using those kinds of talking points. And, you know, the, the easy answer is that, you know, they're doing it deliberately but they're, they're counting on the fact that a lot of people don't want to know the truth. Because as everybody has said here, you know, reading this or other kind residential school memoirs, whatever you're reading, it is shocking or surprising. Um, and then it asks difficult questions like, huh. so if this wasn't just in the past, but creating a structure that benefits me now, how implicated am I in it? Like, you know, those are some of the deeper, unquestion, you know, uncomfortable questions that most people would be like, I'd rather not do that. <laughs> you know, I'd rather, I'd rather not have to engage with 
you know, re-envisioning a different kind of relationship of thinking about my own power and privilege and how that is, is, you know, uh, taken from, you know, the disadvantage of other people deliberately, like the systems are set up that way. Um, and I think that, again, part of why this work is important, not just for me, but for everybody, is that the truth is difficult, right? The truth in this, in this situation, and it's not just that residential schools and day schools were genocidal, which they were, is that public schools also, uh, I think it was maybe Carol was saying how public schooling helped legitimize all of that and legitimizes it still today, right? It kind of views this as like, this was a blip or a sad chapter in the past, but we're like good now. Um, I think what I hope that this work can do is, you know, help people understand that, that it's not that the very root of many of these, these institutions are, are, are rotten, right? That it's not just that things have gotten bad or that some bad people were in charge, is that schooling for indigenous and non-indigenous people has always played a particular role in legitimizing a settler capitalist society that benefits very few people at the expense of a lot of people uh, and in different ways. And I think that that's a difficult sort of realization um, that maybe just slight tweaks here and there are not going to make everything better. Um, and in order to have those difficult conversations with people, we need to know the root uh, of this. And I think that that's what the book was trying to do. Shelley, I'd like, you know, I, I spend a lot of time on the on the photos. It took me almost a year of research. Um, I think in the end, I, I used 30 photos or 32 photos. I had over like 800 photos um, and had to kind of whittle it down to only about 30. Uh, to, to, to use, but again, because of the commitment to making it accessible, uh, I wanted to find ways for pictures to help augment the arguments that I was making. So finding uh, examples of classrooms, like in Souk, for example, on Vancouver Island, where indigenous kids you know, were allowed to go to the public school. And then, I, I mean, I can't believe his name was Mr. White, but anyway, Mr. White complains uh, doesn't want his kids to be educated with indigenous people. And, you know, the, the provincial government makes a change and says, if a parent complains, then, you know, they can be barred. Um, but I have photographic evidence of that prior model existing of indigenous and non-indigenous kids going to the same school. Um, you know, so I thought that just that to add to what you're saying though, how yeah. one parent can change the course of our entire public education system. Um, I have some friends in the queer community and this one particular bear, he keeps bringing up like 12 parents wrote letters to, uh, Scott Moe, the premier of Saskatchewan to change this conversation about Soji one, two, three, right? So like, it is incredible how the the power of you know the the this certain demographic how they can absolutely change the entire public health or the uh public education system and it, it's deplorable so i just wanted to kind of say that to add to what you're saying because yes it's in the past but this is a present day example of that same concept yeah and i mean i think you know part of maybe um my realization kind of coming out of the book was also, um, you know, that a parent in this, in this case, in Souk, 
you know, can change the direction of policy, but also how hard Indigenous parents worked to try in very difficult situations to protect their children as much as possible. Um, you know, it just shows that, that, you know, people being invested in, in this and taking education as problematic as it might be today, seriously, you know, like that is still, and you know, the public school system, we can still understand as being rooted as a settler colonial project, but it's still worth fighting to ensure that our kids have the best experiences possible. Like we can have both, both things can be true, uh, is what I'm trying to say. And, and that it is important, not just leave it to, you know, the few parents who, you know, uh, you know, want to interfere in education for their own particular, very narrow self-serving interests. Uh, it, I think it shows that, that parents have a responsibility too, to push schools to be the best spaces, even if we understand them as problematic, still the best spaces possible. Um, so it, take, it maybe behooves us to take that responsibility um, seriously. I know, Kathy, you got your hand up. Yeah, um, I just want to say that, yeah, it, it did open my mind on, on how societies work and how education is used. Um, so I just have to say that I ended up ordering Karl Marx for because <laughs> I was just like, um, it's the graphic novel one, but I'm, I'm excited for it to come because at least I'll um, get a little understanding because social studies was my least favorite subject in school. So <laughs> I really don't know a lot about how uh, societies and governments work. And uh, basically I have a question about structures of indifference. Oh, sure, um, yeah. I know you you reference Mar uh, Mary Jane McCollum, Logan yep. McCollum. Mm -hmm. um, now, does that structures of indifference is there any other places that that's used because I just love to me it just kind of like wow structures of indifference it just kind of it's so expansive and I'm wondering if there's any other place where it's used well I mean you know th thanks uh thanks for your question Kathy and, and that was sort of getting to Wendy uh your comments too about the structures of indifference so I had some thoughts about that I mean, just very quickly to answer Kathy's question, it, it's such a new book. Um, uh, my colleagues, uh, Adele Perry, who's a, a, in my department in history, and uh, Mary Jane McCallum, who's at the University of Winnipeg, um, you know, their book is fantastic. If you haven't done it for book club or you have looking for a good read, it's good, it's short, it's accessible, it's devastating. Um, but I think, you know, that 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 sometimes my partner says I like depressing things. I mean, it is sort of my line of work. But, uh, um, you know, I think it is a, it's a good book because it shows, I guess, how these structures of settler society are indifferent. You know, that the, the, its primary objective is to maintain the structure and the power and the benefit um, that those structures give certain groups of people. Um, and I think... You know, th there's not a lot that has engaged with that book yet. I mean, one of the things about academic work is it takes a long time. Uh, I think their book came out in 2019. I I'm not sure off the top of my head. Um, but, it, it, you know, I read it and I thought, huh, this is exactly, this is very similar to what I'm experiencing, right? Uh, Wendy noted the, the Bryce example, the Peter Bryce example of, um, 
you know, essentially the Department of Indian Affairs are hearing from a lot of parents that children are dying in higher numbers than should be. Uh, the, the Department of Indian Affairs asks their own medical officer to go and investigate in Western Canada. He writes a report that basically is like, these are these are bad, right? The just like that Davin guy suggested in 1879, the church's management of these schools means that children are not getting enough food, the sanitation is bad, the uh, the ventilation is not good enough, and children are dying at a higher rate than than children in in that are not incarcerated in residential schools. And you know the Department of Indian Affairs needs to do differently. And what does the Department of Indian Affairs do with the report? Nothing, right? Because they know, like they don't care in some ways. That that's I think the the indifferent part is if you look at actually that exchange between Duncan Campbell Scott and Bryce and the officials at that time, um, you know, like he's saying you need to invest more money in making these schools function better. And Duncan Campbell Scott, ever the petty pincher, was like, no. <laughs> you know, I'm looking, I'm looking for ways to cut corners. And let's be honest, uh, you know, this is the kind of callous nature of some of these officials is that the deaths weren't concerning. They just, you know, didn't want to get bad press. Um, and their, their project was to disrupt indigenous communities. So they had a vested interest in not fixing these problems. And I think I, I noticed that over and over again. And Wendy, you brought up the, the example, right? Dr. Bryce and that exchange gets a lot of attention as it should. Uh, but I was finding examples earlier on, um, you know, at Port, Port Simpson and other schools where, you know, missionaries would go in and they would be like, I cannot believe the conditions of these schools. Like we need to do something. I need to tell my superior. And the superior would get this letter and they'd ignore it. You know, like they're not really interested in the in the conditions of the school. They're looking at ways to like skim off the top, get the money, like keep this project going, right? They didn't want to rock the boat because the government was paying them. All they were concerned about was getting more money for the schools, not necessarily the care of the children um, in, in those institutions. That, you know... Um, it's so frustrating to see over and over again, parents, students, you know, even Department of Indian Affairs officials or, or missionaries trying to um, show people the truth, ask those systems to do differently, and the people in charge of those systems being indifferent to human suffering. Um, you know, I think that that is a is an element of these institutions uh, that you know we we really need to take seriously. Uh, I see you know you're saying it's it's very similar to other kinds of of attitudes today. People you know being in charge of these institutions, just sort of you know not being courageous enough to figure out ways to change for the betterment betterment uh, of of society, but rather operating and maintaining these very devastating institutions. Um, and I think that there's, there's a lesson there about how these institutions work for what reasons and what purposes and who benefits most uh, from that. Um, so I think they're coming out of this, Kathy, I think there needs to be larger questions being asked about how structures of a difference worked, yes, in the educational sphere, but also, as Mary Jane and, and Adele have pointed out, in the healthcare uh, industry, 
uh, how indigenous people experience these structures of indifference over and over and over again, not just in the past, but still today in the present too. Yeah, I I um I also want to say about the uh, tuberculosis sanatoriums. They were money making operations too, um, like Maureen Lux talks about it in her separate beds book. Like you know that was um, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people don't know. Yeah, it, it it's um, it's hard, right? I mean, because the problem is is that the residential school system brings in many different institutions. We're talking about church and state. Right. But we're also, you know, I'm doing new research into the Royal Canadian Mounted Police's involvement um, in residential schooling. And one of the things I've just published a small article, uh, if anyone's interested, you can email me for it. Uh, but basically the, the, the Northwest Mounted Police and then the RCMP uh, essentially were acting as truant officers. Right. That if a, if a, if a student ran away. Uh, the principal essentially would contact the Indian agent, the Indian agent would connect with the RCMP and they would go and return the child to the school. Um, but they got paid for that. That is a, that was on top of the budget. Uh, so they were, they had a vested interest, right. Um, in essentially doing this work. And I've, I've uh, in this article that I passed along, um, came across, a. um, a record in the 50s, the 1950s, saying we should stop, we should stop this uh, because it will save us money. <laughs> we should we should find other people uh, to act as true and officers. So you know the RCMP, you know, were acting in this way and often getting paid to do this work for a long time. And you know, again, it's not that I have a particular axe to grind against the RCMP. Uh, but like when you understand that, you start to see the way that the force, um, you know, why the force exists, the work that they do very differently. And it raises these un uncomfortable questions about, you know, if everything from the church and state and RCMP are involved, it, like it starts to unsettle a lot of myths that Canadians have about Canada, right? That we're the peaceable kingdom, um, you know, that we're benevolent and tolerant and all of these kinds of things. And you look into it, um, you know, again, it, it, it unsettles a lot of that mythology uh, that, again, to, to Carol's point, we learned in elementary and high school because it helps us buy into and perpetuate, uh, you know, the, this, the way that society operates. Um, so anyway, I see some hands up uh, as well, Shelley and, and Carol. I was just, the system of indifference is, will just hit me with like ableism because a lot of people don't know what ableism is mm -hmm. and they want to keep the status quo of a lot of I, I want to say white male people that are disabled and when it comes to other people of color and women it's just kept perpetuating like the most a lot of people that were killed in the states by police were people that had disabilities it's it just it's just it just kind of got me thinking. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting. You know, one of the examples um, is that often when confronted with accessibility, um, you know, many institutions will say, oh, I never thought of that before. And then, and then the, the, the follow-up is like, okay, well, now that you've thought about it, you're going to change it, right? And it's like, well, it's kind of expensive. You know, like 
and and so you 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 start to see how you know even if people understand an issue if it means that they have to change or do something different often their response will be indifference because they they benefit like if i got you know if i'm in charge of a building and it's going to charge me you know this much to make it accessible to someone who isn't me right you can see how people who you know like just make uh those problematic decisions right and it kind of like enforces itself and so i think we see that to to uh to kathy's point we see those structures of indifference operating in all sorts of places so this isn't like a residential school specific thing um it was just that i noticed that that formulation or explanation of structures not really caring because changing wouldn't benefit that structure I think we can see that app applied in, in a variety of other uh, examples. So thanks for your, your question there. Carol. So my comment to you is, is and I was thinking about um, early in the book, you say history won't stay in the past. And this history can't stay in the past. It mustn't. And so we need illuminators. You are in a, and in my opinion, an illuminator. You take our stories and you clean them up. And so um, I have a lot of gratitude for people like that, who do things like that. But I can also feel fear about history, some of the history that is coming forward. Um, and not specifically about um, um, Indigenous, people but I mean I think I'm I'm saying I fear some of the history that's going to repeat itself that mm. is so that phrase spoke to me on many levels and I didn't know if it did you as well so I was a bit curious about that yeah no thanks for your question I mean one of the reasons I chose to call the book lessons um is it kind of keys into this idea of like learning from the past so that we don't make the same mistakes that was one of the many reasons um, you know, kind of thinking about hopefully, you know, readers would learn from the book and then be able to be better equipped, as Michelle said at the beginning, to be part of the work of ensuring that things don't happen like this again, uh, or being involved in, you know, transforming um, public education in the context of teachers. I was thinking of teachers as a uh, as an audience, I know that a lot of uh, my colleagues at the University of, of British Columbia use the book or parts of the book uh, in their teacher training, which I'm, I'm of course very happy, you know, to to have educators understand those structures better. Um, but I mean, I think he, here's the problem: reconciliation, meaningful reconciliation is going to require a deep, not only rethink, but also react, uh, a different way of establishing relationships with Indigenous people. It is not surface level. If you look at the, the calls to action, for example, um, they are, you know, some of them are, are kind of more superficial or more symbolic. And a lot of those have been done or in the process of being completed. But a lot of the chunky stuff, changing uh, child welfare, changing the justice system, changing like some of these really big, hard things 
Um, you know, it requires not just like one good government uh, or, you know, a, a priority for a couple of years. Marie Sinclair always says that these are this is going to be a multi-generational project. Residential schools did damage over many generations. Fixing it will take many different generations. Um, but the key to ensuring that we do not lose the momentum, right? Like we've had this before, uh, you know, um, as a historian, I can tell you, it's like, there's a pattern, right? You call a Royal Commission, uh, you have that commission, the commission tells you what not to do, you get it, it gets a headlines for a little while, and then you put it on the shelf and it gathers dust, and then you do it over again, right? Because by the time the the, the report is out, it's probably gonna be someone else in, in charge of government, uh, and it just kind of gets lost in this kind of colonial cul-de-sac of knowing the answer, of having the blueprint to do differently, and then choosing not to do that. Like most of the TRC, uh, and this isn't a slag against it, but many of the things that that shocked Canadians in 2015 about the TRC, we knew from the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples in 1996. Many of the, the, the core recommendations are very similar. Um, so my hope, the, the key that I hope we get from this moment is that we don't do that. We don't just kind of move on, but there will be people in this reading group, in courses that I teach, in seminars that I give, that people will learn some of this and they will implement those lessons of trying to ensure that things do change so that we have a better shot uh, at implementing those calls to action, even if it takes us longer than we would we would want to. I mean, I think, you know, I have um, colleagues who kind of track Canada's progress on the calls to action. And I think there has been sort of a, a lot of people have said, oh, we're not moving fast enough. And perhaps we're not. I always remember Murray Sinclair, every time he speaks, I try and listen to what he's saying. Uh, and he said, you know, I'm actually surprised that we got this many done already. Um, you know, he's like, you know, like kind of a, more of an optimist, right? That if we can commit to the truth part, then that truth part will serve us well as we continue to push uh, to make progress on these things. And so I think, you know, it would be easy to write a book like this and think of myself as a pessimist, but I'm not actually, I'm an optimist. I do believe that despite all the weird things that get sent to me uh, by people who don't want to listen, I think there are way more people who want to, to learn this, to commit to doing differently, to build different relationships. And, you know, I see that, to be honest, I see that in my students. You know, I'm now getting to the point of my career where, you know, I used to think, oh, you know, we're in the same generation. <laughs> and now, now I'm realizing that we are very much not. Um, but I have hope because, you know, I see for many of them, they come into my class with a level of knowledge it took me a decade to learn because, you know, they're learning in different ways. Like I'll just share one example and kick me off whenever you want here, Michelle, people got other things to do with their evenings. But uh, one of the heartening examples I have of this where to Carol's point, I feel hopeful that people are learning this and that we are making more change than we think is my neighbor is a, uh, an elementary school uh, librarian. And she invited me to her, uh, her school to read um, for I Love to Read Month. And so I chose um, a story, a, a part of a story from a book called Fatty Legs, which is about uh, in a um, girl's experience in, in residential school uh, in the North. And I get to the class, I'm not sure what to expect. It's a five, six split. 
And so, you know, I'm getting ready and I'm like, okay, um, you know, just to start off, like, what do you know about, what do you know about residential schools? I'm going to be reading from, from this book and I'm expecting, you know, a five, six group, you know, like for me, uh, you know, I, I was too afraid to wear jeans in grade six because I couldn't figure out the button, uh, you know, so I'm thinking, you know, they probably don't know a lot here, right? And this kid puts up his hand at the back and he's like, well, you know, residential schools were like the church and the government working together uh, to take, you know, Indigenous children away from them to support, you know, the building of Canada. And now we have Orange Shirt Day and we learn about the truth of survivors so that it doesn't happen again. And I'm like, you know, it took me all, it, it, that totally caught me by surprise, right? And, you know, and then all the other, you know, students put up their hand and added different things. Oh, well, you know, a survivor came to talk to us, um, you know, last month about X, Y, or Z. And I'm thinking, you know what? Like, here we are like, oh, we're not moving fast enough. Oh, things aren't going to change. I'm like, these kids got it. Like these, these kids have uh, a level of awareness about this and a commitment to try and make things better that it's taken people like me a long time to figure out. And that gives me, that gives me a lot of hope. Are they going to sit down and read my book? Probably not. Uh, but that's not the way that this is going to work. It's like all of these different truths, finding ways, whether it be in the elementary uh, or high school classroom, uh, whether it's in university, whether it's in a book club like this, whether it's in your church group or your community group or at the public library, I think people's um, desire to learn this and figure out different ways to relate to one another, I do see a, a lot of change in that regard. And it makes me hopeful that we are going to learn those lessons. But it's not a given. It requires that effort. It requires you showing up on a Monday night in January to talk about an academic book that most people wouldn't want to do, you know, when Netflix is right there. Um, but that level of action, I think, is really important. And the benefits that we as a society can have from people who are actively engaged in understanding the truth and in their small way trying to figure out ways to act differently and better I think I think that that's one of the key things, you know, I hear people all the time say, you know, I've read the 94 calls to action, but I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do. You know, like a lot of them are saying the government will do this, the government will do that. But I think what ordinary Canadians can do is figure out ways that they can understand the truth and, and talk to people about it in their lives. And, and that ripple effect will be ginormous. Um, and the long-term effect, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm biased as a historian to think of, you know, change doesn't happen overnight. It, it is incremental. And I think uh, that even just the existence of a book club like this, you know, five, 10 years ago, um, you know, I don't think would have necessarily, it would have had the same uptake. Um, so I guess that that's me trying to end on a hopeful and, and positive note is that, um, you know, we all don't need to do the same thing. Um, here, I just wanted to read a, a part of uh, from this is the, a knock on the door. Well, you can't see that there. So a knock on the door. This is the um, um, a sort of summary of the TRC report. But you, you've read them all. So you're ahead of most people. Um, Okay, this is on page 144. The commission says, although the commission has been a catalyst 
for deepening our national awareness of the meaning and potential of reconciliation. It will take many heads, hands, and hearts working together at all levels of society to maintain momentum in the years ahead. And I think that my long-winded answer to you, Carol, is that I think there are more people invested today in keeping that momentum going than we sometimes realize. Um, and that this is sort of what it looks like. You know, this small, what seems like a small act of reading a book, of talking to people, of sharing, you know, some things that you learned with others. Like that's that's kind of what it is like replicated over and over again. Um, so thanks for, for being here and for taking the time to read the book and, and asking questions. So thank you. You know, I probably should just uh, interject too, because January 4th just came up and um, I think like the spirit of reconciliation is obviously well beyond the 94 calls to action, right? And uh, January 4th was uh, ribbon skirt day. And that wasn't something that was written about because it happened recently where a young girl was shamed at her school for wearing a ribbon skirt on a formal day by a teacher who was an, obviously an ignorant ass. And as a result, um, you know, it, uh, January 4th is my birthday. Everyone hates my birthday for the simple fact that that's usually the Monday back from holidays, right? So no one likes my birthday. So that was the day we all chose to protest it because it happened as like a Christmas concert. And uh, so, you know, we all had our holiday. And then on January 4th of that year, we were all like, you know, screw you all we're all wearing our ribbon skirts this was like a protest we all did and uh again back to the idea of reconciliation and the spirit of reconciliation the government was like yeah let's make this let, let's make this real and and they made that real so that you know it's not a paid day off but it, it's national ribbon skirt day to acknowledge that day and to acknowledge this young girl who was wrongly shamed in her school system for wearing a ribbon skirt for her Christmas concert. So like, I, I think too, um, cause I, uh, Sean, obviously your colleagues are probably all at the Yellowhead Institute. And when they came out with their report saying, you know, zero calls to action were done this year, like that, that's very devastating for me to read. Like I, I, I was very sad about that. So when I, um, but then when ribbon skirt day happened, it was like, but that's an example of reconciliation and the spirit of reconciliation. That's bigger than just the beyond the 94 calls to action. So, you know, and, and what you said was so brilliant. I hope that people who watch podcast or the YouTube or, or whichever can always remember that, you know, that can be done anywhere, you know, had my husband's old um, work just instead decided to not be assholes about, you know, uh, Indian residential schools, maybe he'd still be there. Maybe he wouldn't be, you know, anyway, it doesn't matter. It's that bigger picture that people can do more and should do more. And um, I should say to you all, uh, one of the community associations outside the 12 that I used to represent um had me come speak and they sent a message that they had read um, unsettled and they, that, that really taught them to be humble. Right. So like these books matter and the more we, we recommend them to everybody else, I think the better. And in this case, this lessons in legitimacy, it's so interesting to me because one of the things that I've always thought about Sean is um, and I'll give you an example prior to the TRC here in Calgary, we hosted this national poli sci student uh, conference that they have. And um, 
I was brought in on a Sunday afternoon, most of the folks had already gone home and I did the land acknowledgement and it was the first time they had heard it. Cause as you know, Calgary was like the last place in Canada to want to do land acknowledgements. And so I, I opened up by starting that and all of the BC poli-sci students were like, finally, we get to hear a land acknowledgement because in BC, it was so normalized long before the TRC. So it, it's just shocking to me reading this and reading this about state schooling in BC and, and you know, BC already being so much more aware of Indigenous issues and understanding Indigenous issues in such a different way than the rest of the country. Do you, am I wrong there? Do you see that too? Or what are your thoughts about how others see Indigenous inclusion across the country? Yeah, I mean, you know, I have an interesting perspective because I, I, I grew up, I was born and, and raised in, in North Vancouver, um, in British Columbia. And, you know, that is where my roots are, where I understand myself to be. Um, but the process of becoming a professor has taken me across the world. Um, you know, I've moved to Ontario for, for university. I've moved to London and the UK. Um, uh, I've lived in, in Calgary. Uh, I'm now, I now call Winnipeg home. And so I have a lot, I've been able to see my own home you know, British Columbia differently as a result. And I mean, I would say that BC in some ways is ahead uh, on, on many issues. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, one of the things that is perhaps uncomfortable about British Columbia is much of it continues to be unceded, stolen Indigenous land. So, yeah, sure, uh, there are some um, municipalities and groups that uh, have you know, been doing really good work on raising awareness about land acknowledgements and trying to develop better relationships. Uh, but, you know, they're doing so in a context where, you know, the land has simply been stolen and there's no treaty. Uh, there's, there's no real, you know, like, so there's like a symbolic work being done that is good and is helpful. Um, but it operates in a very different context. I mean, one of the maybe uh, uh, more surprising, I guess, findings of the book is how the public school system was funded. I don't know if anyone picked that up, but essentially, uh, it was it was that stolen land generated the money for for the school system continually, not just a one time thing, but like you know, essentially they stole land and then they gave municipalities certain lots that they sold and then used the money to like fund the school and keep it going. And how, how interesting is that? That like how schooling and land is connected and the funding of that, that, that did actually kind of took me a while to really understand and put those pieces together. I mean, school funding sounds pretty boring. Um, and <laughs> I spent a lot of time digging through these documents to figure out like, huh, they're really just saying like, you can have this land and we're going to take over the 99% of it. And then we'll give some of it to the, the school board to, to like, you know, sell off. And then they're going to save that money. Same with residential schools. This is what a lot of people don't understand is that here in treaty areas, you know, like we, we do, I think there are some that think, well, you know, BC doesn't have any treaties, but we have treaties. Well, well our treaties are not particularly great and we're not really upholding uh, many of those promises. And, the treaty process was also one of dispossession. And they, it was like, you have these reserves, 
We're going to take over all the rest of the money. We're going to parcel it up. We're going to sell it. The money that we get from selling it, we're going to put into a fund that's going to accrue a whole bunch of interest. And then we're going to use that interest to pay for residential schools, day schools, all of the different things. That's why, you know, taxpayer money, people say, oh, Indigenous people use all of this taxpayer money. They don't know about, you know, the Indian fund, which was basically just like, the the cream of you know the interest of stolen land that was sold and then used to maintain the colonial project um i don't know where i'm going with this because i've been talking for a while but i i think that that that's unsettling right to see how you know regardless of perhaps the differences in canada of you know maybe how far ahead some places are as opposed to others the structures of how settler capitalism works is pretty is is working and and, and uh, is pretty strong everywhere because uh that was how it was intended these structures were built for that purpose and they continue to serve that function and that's i think the hard part is will reconciliation be more of a symbolic we recognize some wrongs and we want to bring you into this structure that benefits us or are we courageous enough to challenge that structure and think about different ways of relating and, and living together? Um, and that takes us outside of my expertise. But I think that, that understanding the root of these systems begs those difficult kinds of questions. And you know, I think that that's where um, that work will need to go in, in future of thinking about how do we move forward in ways that actually shakes up these systems rather than, you know, just brings more people into them? Well, really important conversation considering the immigration conversations that are happening nationally as well. Um, thank you, Sean, for coming and spending your time, your evening with us on a, on a cold <laughs> winter Monday evening, just so that we could talk to you because I, you know, especially uh, uh, the members of the Reconciliation Action Group here that do that work, you know, I think that they need to hear from, you know, a little outside our bubble about it moving forward and being patient and, and working within these systems and seeing that the very structures that were created in the 1800s are exactly the same structures that we're finding today with that, you know, settler anxiety and how that's repeating and uh, they are not learning those lessons, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I, I just can't thank you enough from the bottom of my heart. No, th thank, thank you. And, and thanks to all of you for spending some time over the holidays or in the early new year of engaging with the book in whatever way uh, you were able uh, really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you folks and take, uh, you know, I take inspiration from, from you as well. Um, you know, doing this work of, of convening people, uh, of getting together as a group and collectively working on, on these issues. Um, you know, it's, it's the model. It's kind of how change happens. So, uh, thanks so much. And, uh, really look forward to hearing more, uh, about the group. And it looks like you have a phenomenal 2024 lineup already. Uh, so, so good luck and enjoy. Hopefully, you, hopefully you don't have to go all the way out to Canmore to get re the rest of the books, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I can't thank you enough. What this will probably go up on uh, Sunday or Monday, so um, that'll be on our podcast and on the YouTube as well, so we can send it to a few of our members who aren't able to come today. And but we'll get to meet you and get to hear what you had to say and such. So I, I so appreciate you taking the time and going through all of this with us. Thank you.
Wonderful. Thanks so much, everybody. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for coming today, as always. And I look forward to seeing you at the next one. Don't hesitate to reach out to any of your friends and family. Encourage them to come. And uh, yeah, maybe share an old YouTube or um, uh, podcast that had one of our, our past book clubs from maybe last year that you really enjoyed so that you can you know show your friends and family that this is why you're always busy and always have your nose in a book and um I recently came across a, a black uh librarian in the states that was being bullied by some I don't know influencer I don't even know who the influencer is I just blocked him um but that bigger picture that he was such a sweet person that brought all of this joy so this is somebody new I'm following on TikTok and I absolutely want to encourage that and I did send you uh, an email asking about your RCMP report there Sean and Sean says here you can always send me an email too happy to answer any questions because obviously everyone here is coming in good faith as opposed to all of those nasty trolls that he must get on a regular basis so <laughs> oh and I also encourage everyone here to write a, a positive review for Sean to again offset the negative ones and hopefully encourage others and Carol of course saying thanks for being an illuminator again uh, which is a great point Carol I'm so grateful each and every one of you contribute the way you do thank you folks for coming today <laughs>